We just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to look at your word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we examine this, these verses in the, in the book of Matthew and, and help us to understand what you would want us to know from this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Matthew chapter 17, starting at verse 9. And like I said, I, I remember, I think, reading about this, but I don't think we talked about it. So this is where we're going to start, because that's where I've recorded we stopped. So, so they, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah has already come, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So we're going to look at this, uh, because this is kind of an interesting statement on it, and and Jesus' answer is even more unusual (laughs) in it. And they're coming down off the mountain. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration that we covered last week where Jesus was shown to the disciples in all of his glory and, and his, he shown, his clothes shown, and Elijah and, and Moses appeared with them. And we talked about how did they know it was Elijah and Moses that, that appeared with them. And I don't know if there were introductions made or if they just knew uh, they entered into the spirit realm because there is a, a school of thought that says when we go to heaven, we will know everybody in heaven. And it's kind of scary. I don't even know everybody here on earth, much less try to know everybody in heaven. But uh, it makes sense that we'll have the perfect, perfect understanding, a perfect unity of the, of the body of Christ in heaven and be able to know one another. So that could be what they experienced in that event. But as they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus tells them, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And been, we've been talking oftentimes about this. We, we just went back a couple visits uh, verses that said, from this time, Jesus started telling them that he must suffer and die. And if you remember, Peter goes, oh, no, Lord, you're not, you know, not going to die. And he says, get behind me, Satan, and, and all of that. And the disciples never truly understood this whole idea of Jesus going to die and rise again on the third day. But here he is right again telling them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And then you're free to tell people what you've seen. Because at that time, he will have been declared to be king of kings, lord of lords, and, and truly be the Messiah. Until then, he was not doing anything amongst the people that would say, I am the Messiah, the king. And it doesn't until he goes into the triumphant entry into Jerusalem and everybody yells, Hosanna, save now God, and all of that, and they're ready to make him king, that he actually comes in and says, I am the Messiah. It's the first time in all of his ministry that he's admitting to people and, and doing what, it, what shows that he is Messiah. He rides on, on a donkey. And, you know, we think that's kind of a strange thought when we read it as, as Gentiles two, you know, almost 2,000 years later. But the tradition of that era was that if, you, if the king rode in on a donkey into a city, he was coming in peace. If he came in riding a charger, a, horse, a war horse, he was coming in ready for battle. So Jesus was entering into Jerusalem as the king in peace, not as the warrior to, to judge everybody. So it's a very critical thing, and that's the first time he really admits that I am king. He does what basically is understood to say, this is the king coming in. And he accepts the worship. But that's the first time because every place else he's telling people, be quiet about this. Don't share it. Because it's not time for him to be elevated to that position yet. Even though he is. Because if he had elevated him to that position before the cross, they would have basically forced him to be king. And it's kind of hard to imagine being forced to be king. But if the whole multitude is wanting you to be king... They're going to put you on the throne, and all of a sudden, especially when Rome is running the place, King Herod would not have a great time, and Pilate would not have a great time with a king being raised up, and the people saying, this is our king. And it wasn't the time. And Jesus did nothing before the correct time. So he's telling people, don't, don't. (laughs) 
you know, I, we're not bringing out this, we're not bringing this message yet. And it's true for us at times, we need to be careful sometimes, sometimes we get so excited we bring information out, more information than people can handle. And this is something teachers can do a lot. Uh, they study and they study and they get so excited about what they, they study and then they get to the group and they just throw out everything they've studied for, for a week. And something I've tried not do in my time because I study many hours for each of these studies that I do and I don't want to overwhelm people with every bit of information out there. I want people to go away feeling that they grabbed a few things rather than, oh no, my mind has been overloaded. I don't, uh, what, did, what did you say about anything? <laughs> Uh, and this is something as a teacher we have to be, teachers have to be careful of, a discipler has to be careful of. Don't give them everything you know about a topic unless they can handle it. And depending on how long you've been walking with God, that, that couldn't be, can be possible or maybe not possible. Uh, but we want to look at this, and Jesus says, Tell no man what you've seen until I'm raised from the dead. And you can picture Peter, James, and John kind of thinking, you know, here he's talking about this death thing again. You know, what, what, why does he keep talking about dying and coming back to life? No one, number one, no one, no one comes back from the dead. And, you know, he's the Messiah. He's not going to die. He's going to set up the kingdom. So there's all kinds of confusion every time he speaks that. But, you know, and he's telling them, when I die and rise again, now you, then you can go tell people what you've seen. And then they, then they decide to ask him a question, and they say, why then do the scribes say, say that Elijah must come first? And this is something that was being taught in the church, that Elijah will come first, uh, or taught in the synagogues. And let me go back here to a verse. And that's Malachi 4, verse 5, and it says... Now let's go back to verse 4. Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in, in, in Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So their understanding is that Elijah must come, or at least the spirit of Elijah must come before the Messiah comes. So this is what, what they've been teaching, and the disciples are going, hey, you know, you're the Messiah. Where, where's, where's Elijah been? You know, Elijah's supposed to be here, according to the scribes and teachers is telling us Elijah's supposed to be here. All right, and, that's, and it's a valid point. And this is something that I state quite often. When I study eschatology, which is the study of the end times, I've been looking at it for over 30 years. And it has been amazing to me how over the last 30 years, so much of eschatology has changed in their understanding. Because one thing about it, it's all about the future. Which is one of the reasons, though I will talk and teach about eschatology, it's not one of my favorite topics because it is a constantly changing topic because it's something in the future. I would rather talk about how do you live with Jesus today and not about all the details and bits and pieces. The Jews had a very strong eschatology. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to make Israel the center, center government of all, of all of the world. And the scriptures talk about that. They missed a whole period of time where Jesus dies for the sins, becomes the savior of the world, and then comes back at the end of days as in his second coming and reigns, sets up Israel as, it, as the kingdom of the world and reigns from there for a thousand years and then destroys the, new, the earth and the heavens and creates a new heaven and new earth and he rules from Jerusalem in the new heaven and earth. So yes, it's there. What they saw is there and is true. They just didn't see the complete picture. So my warning, whenever you listen to people talking about the end times and they get very dogmatic about this is what is going to happen and this is how it's going to happen, Take everything they say with a grain of salt because the Jews were very dogmatic about how the Messiah was going to come and what he was going to do, and they missed some huge pieces of the picture. And it is quite possible that as, as dogmatic as people get, they may have some pictures <laughs> that they miss. Now, I will teach and I'll tell you what I believe because I, I stick with the stuff that I understand has stayed the same. But, you know, it's kind of amazing when they talk about Israel being attacked from the north 
it's, it's gone all over the place, and now the current talking points is that it's going to be Babylon, Iraq, and, and Russia, which makes sense if you look at the old maps that have Gog and Magog on them from ancient maps, that those are the two countries that are listening. But because there was nothing north of Israel until you got to Russia in the, in the past, they kind of ignored all of those. So I, again, I just want to tell you, if you hear somebody says, this is the way it's going to be, when they're talking about eschatology, take it with a grain of salt. They may or may not be right, but it's, it's going to change and it's going to be in flux. And there's a lot of things that are very accurate. We know certain things are going to happen because the Bible is clear on that. But there's also certain things we don't know what's going to happen. There may be some kind of gulf in there where we go, okay, this starts, we have this event, and then all of a sudden we go another hundred years or so. I don't think it's going to happen, but be aware the Jews never expected a 2,000-year gap between the coming of, of the Messiah and his reigning as the king. But again, if you find somebody who is absolute 100% dogmatic about the end times, take what they're saying with a grain of salt. You know, look at their verses, try to decide whether you agree with it, but be very careful with it. Because I've been studying it for a long time, and I can tell you it is, if you read things from 30 years ago and then you read things from today, there's the core that stays the same, the stuff that is very clear in the scriptures, and then there's all the outside things that change a lot. And there was a time when most of Revelation was spiritualized. They had this idea of a mark on your hand or your forehead that you couldn't buy or sell without. That just drew, you know, blew people's mind. There's no way you could do that. Now we know exactly how you could do it because we're having people play around with computer chips embedded in their hands so they can open the security systems at their house and clock in and clock out of, their, of work. You know, and we're starting to see what used to be looked at as saying, well, there's no way it could ever happen to <laughs> we see exactly how it could happen. Uh, they used to say that when the Bible talked about the whole world watching the the two witnesses at the temple when they were killed and resurrected, they're going, oh, that has to be, no, no way you could have a whole world could watch it. Even in the 70s or 80s, there's no way the whole world could watch it live. You know, maybe they see the re replay on tapes. Well, in our day and age, we go, we could picture a channel 24-7, the witnesses at the, at the temple channel, that people would sit there and watch, waiting for, those, waiting for them to get their they're just desserts. So I'm just saying be very careful when people are saying anything about the end times dogmatically. Now they say this is what I believe or this is what I think. Fine. Check it out. Verify it. But don't get so dogmatic about it that you're going to sit there and argue. I've seen churches split over what's going to happen in the end times. And it makes no sense because it's not really that important. What's going to happen is going to happen no matter what it's going to happen. God's told us a lot of things about it, but he hasn't told us everything there is to know about it. As, as was talked about earlier, we, you know, we don't know the day or time that Jesus is coming to rapture his church, which means we don't know when the, when the tribulation period is going to begin. And so we just want to be very careful about that. And they've been setting days and times all over the place. I remember in, in eight, 1988, it was a very exciting year for most people because Israel had been a nation for 40 years. And then going, in, in the Bible, a generation is 40 years, and God said he would return when, before this generation ended. So everybody was excited, and it was a big deal in 1988 that Jesus was coming. Didn't come. He missed it by 30, almost 30 years now. Uh, so obviously a generation doesn't always mean 40, even though in most cases in the Bible a generation was 40 years. But, you know... Again, I'm just making a point, you know, not that we want to totally not study the end times, but just be careful how dogmatic you get and how dogmatic the teachers are you listen to, uh, because the things have changed drastically in 30 years. Yeah, but it's not just his return that, it, that has the dogmatic part to it. Yeah, well, the second coming, everything about the tribulation, there, you know, it's prophesied and it's not extremely clear. It's a lot of pictures being used, a lot of word plays are being used. And we do know a lot about it, but we also don't know everything about it. So, but he says, you know, Jesus answered in verse 11, Elijah truly shall come, first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done, 
unto him what they, what they wanted. Likewise shall they do to the Son of Man, suffer of them. So basically he's saying Elijah is coming, but Elijah has come. And you, to understand that statement, you've got to kind of put your mind into the Israelites and that whole Middle Eastern Asian mentality. They can have two things happen at the same time, and most prophecies had a literal immediate prophecy so that the, the prophet wouldn't be stoned, and had a long-term prophecy that was going to be sometime in the future. When Isaiah said that a virgin shall give birth to a child, the king's newly married uh, wife gave birth to a child. <laughs> and so she had been a virgin, not literal virgin the way Mary was, but and so there was a fulfillment of that prophecy because you've got to remember if a prophet gives a false prophecy, they were subject to being stoned to death. So God would usually give them an immediate physical answer to their, to their prophecies. And then it would also refer to something further down the road. And so in this case, Jesus is saying, Elijah is coming, but he has also already been here because he called people to repentance before I came here, and that was John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist's whole ministry was repent. And that was not a message that the Jews usually heard. You know, we hear it as Christians all the time. You, to be saved, we must repent and, and ask Jesus and do our heart. And in the Jewish mentality, all you had to do was go to the temple, offer your sacrifice, and you were forgiven. You really, in their mindset, didn't have to repent. Now, it talked about repentance all the time in the scripture, but that wasn't the way they thought. The difference between a, or is there any difference between a prophet and a seer? Seers usually are not God's, peop not God's people. Now, having said that, Many times in the Old Testament, they will call the prophets a seer as well. Uh, seer literally means one who sees the future, usually has the implication of through demonic forces. But having, again, having said that, there were times when Samuel and other prophets were called seers. They, they predicted the future. They saw the future from the spirit. Prophet in its most literal sense is one who speaks for God. And it doesn't necessarily involve predicting the future even. A pastor who's teaching from the word of God authoritatively is by definition a prophet. He speaks with authority from God and speaks God's word. Most of the time, especially in our day and age, we think of prophets as people who predict the future. But that is, that's, that's a very narrow slice of what a, what a prophet is. Uh, in the Bible, a prophet is anybody who speaks with God's authority. And in, uh, Elijah ran a school of the prophets. He taught people how to be prophets. In our day and age, we would call them seminaries. They went to, the, they went to school. They learned how to read the Bible, understand the Bible, pray, lead people, and lead churches. Now, in the process, they probably learned whatever they could by getting close to the Spirit and learning to what we would call prophesy and tell in the future, but he was training leaders of the people to go out and teach. And that was a prophet. A prophet was one who went out and taught authoritatively from God's word and said, this is what God says, or even expands upon it and teaches within God's word and adds to it. So yeah, it's, it's both. <laughs> Most of the time when you see the word seer, it is negative. It is a demonic activity using, the, using the, the demons as their source of information. But again, I just want to be careful because then you're going to read, you know, they, they went to the seer and you find them going to Elijah or, or Samuel, but it's not the usual way it's used. Um, and this is why we're in danger in our day and age of all these people with crystal balls and tarot cards and and you know seers uh ouija boards all of that stuff you know most of it's fake and and play they're just con artists but every once in a while you'll come with somebody who taps into 
the demonic forces and can give you information that you didn't know. Uh, and this is, you know, most of the con artists are good at get, about getting information out of you that you didn't even know you've, you've said. You know, we, we went to this or we did that and oh, there's more than one of you. Okay, you're gonna, you know, your family, your, your, your significant other, whatever the language they wanna use, you know, and they just play off what you have said. Uh, every once in a while though, they tap into the demonic world and the demons know just about everything there is to know about you. Anything, they know your family, they know, you know, your relatives, they, they know things. Anything they can see, they know about you. Anything you've ever said or had said around you, they know. So sometimes you go to these people and if they are truly tapped into the demonic world, they can really blow your mind with what, with the information that they can come up with. So something we as Christians don't want to play with at all, and even as non-Christians, they probably shouldn't want to play with it because there's so many con artists. And, but again, that's a good question because seer is, is negative in most cases, but every once in a while you'll see it used for a true prophet of God. And the words are technically, especially from the world's point of view, are totally interchangeable. Uh, you'll, never, you'll never see somebody touching into the demonic called a prophet. It's very much a God word <laughs> on it. Um, all right. So Jesus tells them that, hey, yes, uh, John, uh, Elijah will come just like, just like Micah, uh, uh, Malachi said. But he also says he also has come already. John the Baptist preaching repentance to you. And again, we've talked about this. Repentance is something that the Jews understood repentance but it really wasn't part of their day-to-day -day worship. Uh, today, the Jews are basically agnostic and, and, and believe things that aren't biblical, and it wasn't any different in Jesus' day, and it wasn't any different in Malachi's day, it wasn't any different in Jeremiah's day. Many of them did not believe in God. They had uncircumcised hearts. They were circumcised in the flesh, but they did not have a true circumcision and following of God. They had their rules. We come, to, we come to the tabernacle or the temple and we do this. We, we drag our lamb behind us who, who is pure and we get it cut up and it's our offering that's get burnt on the, on the fire and we're good for a year. Okay, we're forgiven for a year. Doesn't matter that I don't believe it, any of it, but you know, hey, this is, this is what we do. On Yom Kippur, we drag this lamb to the, to the altar and it gets, it gets burnt and our sins are covered for a year. And we're good, we're good until the next time. And that is how most of them practiced. There would be a few that said, God, I am just so sorry. I am I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And we see God's grace, his mercy, repentance all through the Old Testament. And, but it's the same thing that happens in our day and age. There's so many people that come to church and it's just a box. God, I came to church. <laughs> that's, my, that's my service to you for this week, God. Or if you're really, you know, you're one of the Christmas and Easter Christians, God, I did my church visit. I'm good for six months until the next, next event comes, and I'll check my box then, and I'll, I'll be coming to church on that day, and I'll, God, you know, you, you should be happy, God. You've got me two times a year. You know, I've checked off my box. And I mean, I pick up my Bible once, once every year or two and read, read a couple verses out of it and check my box off. And you've got some people that are, you know, quote-unquote Christians. God, I come to church every week. I read my Bible a couple times a week. I say my prayers check 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 okay god we're, we're good and god don't worry about me drinking on you know getting drunk on on friday night and uh don't worry about me going out and uh committing uh, fornication with this person this next this next week you know god you know I, i've got my little check marks god you don't you know, yeah yeah i'm a good person and i've got my little check marks i've done i've done my duties and this is what jesus is what john was doing he was calling the people away from just the check boxes and saying, it's time to repent. It's time to turn to God. When Jesus comes into us, he will change who we are and really make us a new creation. And the problem that we see is many people look at Christians who are just checking off boxes, and they look at them and saying, well, they're no different than anybody else. They go to church on Sunday. They, might, they talk about reading their Bible, but they're doing the same things I'm doing. They're reading, they're watching the same movies, they're reading the same books, they're, they're on the pornographic sites, they're picking up uh, one night stands, they're, they're getting drunk with me, they're getting, getting high with me, and they you know, look down that list and go, 
why would I want to be a Christian? They're just like me. Except that they waste their Sunday morning going to church. God wants to change us. And he will change us when he comes in, when we repent and turn away from our sin. He will change us. And we all know people who have had their lives changed. And hopefully those in this room are those that are, had their life changed. And people will look at you and say, wow, there's something really different about you. You're not perfect, but you, you seem to be really the real deal. That's what, that's what I hear a lot of times, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to somebody who goes, you're the real deal. You really believe and, and act upon what you're talking about. And that's the testimony we want as Christians. You're, you're the real deal. You know, you may not be perfect, but you're, you're definitely trying to be different from the rest of the world. And this is what Jesus is saying. John called people to repentance. He called them to come and correct it. And then that's when the disciples recognized that he was talking about John the Baptist. Um, not quite sure how they got to that conclusion. Yeah, that's going to be my next question. Uh, probably most of it was the Holy Spirit teaching them, but John the Baptist was a different type of prophet. You want to remember, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Because the New Testament truly, even though we count Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as New Testament books, the New Testament doesn't start until Jesus dies and is resurrected. All right, so John the Baptist is part of the Old Testament, and then technically, while Jesus lived, he was part of the Old Testament. Okay, because the New Testament does not start literally until Jesus dies and is resurrected, and his blood creates a new New Testament. Now, on the flip side, we've talked about the omniscience of God, that Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So the case can be made that the New Testament existed from the moment Jesus said, I will. All right? But in our, in our spatial time frame, the New Testament starts at the resurrection of Jesus. And technically, most people will say it starts at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the disciples and fills them and, and, and creates the church. So, yeah. One, one way or the other, it's either at the resurrection or the Pentecost, which is only 50 days different, so it really doesn't matter uh, which way you want to believe on that. Uh, but remember, as we're reading this stuff, we're reading the Old Testament in this particular book. Uh, even though it's a New Testament book, it's still New Old Testament reality because the New Testament hasn't started yet. Jesus is teaching the New Testament. He's teaching the information of the New Testament. But it's happening in the Old Testament period, just to make sure you're all totally confused. All right, verse 14. And then when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oft times he falls into the fire and oft into the waters. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithful, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why, were, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, this kind goes out, not out, but by prayer and fasting. So we're going to look at this. A man comes to Jesus. They're, they're back in a multitude. They're, they're back with a large group of people, the multitude, thousands of people around them. And it says this man comes up to him and kneels before him. All right? So this is a man that's acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. You don't kneel before somebody who isn't of very high rank or at least higher than you are. So he's recognizing this is the Lord. May not really understand him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but this is a man that I want to really please. I'm going to bow down to him because people are getting healed when he, when he talks. The demons are being cast out. And his prayer was simple. Lord, have mercy on my son. Not even have mercy on me, but on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. Now, lunatic literally means moonstruck. All right? There was a time when people believed because when the full moon came out, it affected people in, in heavier ways than non-full moons. So they, they would call them lunatics, loon, lunar, mooner, uh, struck. And there is some 
logic to it from what people have said because of the water in our bodies being pulled to one side. You know, it's, it's kind of on, iffy on whether it's true or not. But he says, this, this is my son. He's, he's something definitely wrong with him. Epileptic. I do not like epileptic because the there is no word in ep, in Greek for epilepsy. What they're trying there is to because Jesus casts out a demon, and in that version they're trying to make it a sickness, and Jesus cast out a sickness, and it's not a sickness he casts out; it's a demon that he casts out, and the Greeks had no concept of epilepsy. Now what he describes sounds a little bit like epilepsy. He takes seizures and but in this case he says he oftentimes falls into fires and into water demons are trying to kill an individual uh, and I know the newer versions all use epilepsy because of what it talks about but it doesn't fit epileptic epi, epi, epilepsy does not fit in the context of this section so again be very careful with some of these newer translations uh, they're great they're easy to read I gave up on, on my newer version because of so much of the stuff that is, I just got tired of having to figure out whether what they talked about was good or not. And little things like that, little places like that, little places where they changed the meanings of a sentence and not to the better usually. And I'm not blanket covering all, all uh, newer versions, but be very careful. I'm not even a big fan of the new, new King James version because it does the same thing. And there's a few places where the New King James changes the very meaning and the heart of a verse. And it's scary because people are reading a very watered down gospel. And because they don't know enough to get into the Greek and the Hebrew and find out what is actually said, they don't know when they're seeing something bad. And if they only read the new version and never had the old one to be looked at, they're really in trouble. And, and I understand reading the, new te, you know, the newer versions. I used an NIV for 10 years, and I enjoyed using it. It was very clear, and, and it was easy to read, and where it was good, it was very good. But the problem was where it was bad, it was very bad. And that's the problem with most of these newer versions. Where they're, you know, they do some really good scholarly things and do a really good job translating. But there are also places where they do a very, very, very poor job translating. And this is one of the reasons I eventually want to do a how to study the Bible and teach people how to use a Strong's Concordance and a, and a lexicon and all these things to be able to look up the original meanings of words. And so you can kind of defeat some of the stuff you read in the, in the newer versions. And, uh, and like I said, I used an NIV for 10 years and I loved it. It was fun to read. It brought out things I'd never seen before. But some of those things are brought out, I'm going, that doesn't even sound right, and I'd have to go and do some study. And uh, so be very careful when you're looking at this. But the Greek word literally means moonstruck. <laughs> All right? Lunatic, moonstruck. And, uh, or crazy, as, we, <laughs> as the colloquialism would be. And Seizures isn't too bad, because that would be seizures. But again, seizures take it to, he has some kind of sickness. And Jesus casts out a demon. Well, that's what, because I thought seizures and epileptic, and then it says he cast out a demon. I, there was no understanding between demon and, and epilepsy. Yeah, because if you go that route, then you're saying that all people that have epilepsy are demonically possessed, and I don't think that's a true statement. Yeah. Many of them may be, but that is not a true statement that all are. And this is where the world is going to right now, and I've said this many times, the world is trying to make all demonic activity and sin to be sickness. Case in point, you're not a drunk, you're an alcoholic. And an alcoholic is a disease, alcoholism is a disease, it's not a sin. And therefore, how can God judge you for being an alcoholic? I just can't help myself, I have a disease. Now I, I gave myself this disease by overusing alcohol so much, okay? But you see, this is what's going on. Homosexuality used to be considered a sin, then it became a psychological sickness. Now it's an accepted lifestyle. This is the progression that Satan is trying to take just about anything. And if you look up in a psychological disorder book, anything that is a sin has a psychological disorder attached to it. The person is not a thief, they're a kleptomaniac. Okay, This person is not an adulterer and fornicator, they're addicted to sex. They just can't 
help themselves because they're sick. They can't help themselves, but God can. Well, in, in some ways, yes, sickness, uh, you know, dis- sin is a place if you do it long enough that you can't help yourself and you're addicted to the sin. But you understand what I'm saying about this. The world is trying to make everything that God says is a sin and call it sickness. All right? You're not a glutton. You just are having trouble controlling your appetite. And, you're, and you just have a mental or, or, or a psychological disorder. And we can help you by giving you enough medications to get over this sin. Because it's not a sin, it's a sickness. And it takes it from, if you take it out of being a sin into a sickness, how can God judge sickness? That would be like saying, you've got a cold, so, and, and you're going to go to hell because you have a cold. You can't help getting a cold. Well, you can't do some, some things, but ultimately you can't help getting a cold or pneumonia or, and everything. So if they can make all sin a sickness, then they take the, pers- the re- personal responsibility away from the sin and basically make God a liar, saying that he's going to judge all sin. So be very careful with this. Don't let this mindset get stuck in your brain you know, I hate the term where, where you know, and it's one of the things I don't like about Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I am an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic even if I haven't taken a drink for 40 years. I'm still an alcoholic. Why? Because alcoholism is a disease that I can never get over. It's not a sin that God can deliver me from. Okay? And it's very important that we understand the difference. Now, that doesn't mean that if you were ever an alcoholic, don't go hanging around bars, you know, just because you think you can do so, it's probably not the wisest thing. Don't start taking that first or second drink because, you know, I've been healed of my, of my, my, my sin. It's still a very strong pull for most people. But if you haven't had a drink for 30, 40 years, you aren't an alcoholic because that's a disease in the first place, and you're probably not a drunk anymore. Could you become a drunk pretty easily? Yes. But so can anybody else who gets victory over any sin that starts doing it again. Whatever that sin might be, you can be drawn back into that sin real easy if you allow yourself to be drawn back in, even if you've got victory. But don't buy into this whole idea that the sin is a disease. Now, every sin, and I've said, has an addictive quality to it. You need more and more of whatever sin to get the same feeling you did from the very beginning. Alcohol and drugs are very extreme examples of it. You, know, you used to get buzzed with one, one drink, and then you, after a while it takes two or three drinks to get buzzed, and then before long you're not even getting buzzed. You're just getting, you know, getting totally wasted and not, not even getting buzzed. And alcohol, uh, drugs do the same thing. But uh, sexual affairs can do the same thing. The excitement of that first one, you know, and then you have to go further and further and to get the same excited feeling you know, multiple partners or different people or, or different places, whatever it might be, you no longer have the same feeling and you've got to go further into de- degradation to get the same thrill or joy and eventually you never do. Just like alcohol and drugs, you still have the same thing. Somebody who becomes a pathological liar who just cannot tell the truth has the excitement of having told a lie and getting away with it and then they tell more and more and more and then it just becomes their lifestyle, and they cannot get that same feeling of, I got away with it again. This is true of all sin. All sin has an addictive quality to it. We just don't recognize it as much when it's not that physical addictive quality. You know, try to quit doing some of those things. If, you know, if you've been a thief for a long time, try to quit being a thief. And you're going to find it has just as heavy withdrawal symptoms as any other physically addictive activity. Be somebody who's been into sexual relationships with multiple partners and lots of one night stands and try to get rid of it. Most people will tell you that they're drawn back into it, right back into it without God. So we want to keep in mind, do not let the world be teaching you that all these things are sicknesses because it waters down God's word. And it means that Jesus died for nothing. If all it is is sickness, all we needed was a good doctor with, a, with the right prescriptions to, to heal you. And it wouldn't have needed Jesus. So want to be very careful. And he says, my son is having these seizures of some sort. Fits. I love the way King James puts it. Fits. He has fits. And the next thing I know, he's in the fire or he's in the water. And trying, he's trying to be killed. And... For many years, it used to say that everybody that had epileptic seizures were 
demon-possessed, and I don't know that that's true. You know, I do believe that some of them probably are, but not all of them. And I have to be careful when I say that. Many of the psychological diseases that we have out there probably are d demonic, but not all of them. So we have to be very careful. We're not here to judge any of that. But we are writing off a lot of demonic activity in our name of our science and saying, well, this, this, this person acting just like that person. The man who had a legion of demons in him probably looked very schizophrenic. He had one, 100 demons in him, or a legion, 1,000 demons in him that would probably manifest as a whole lot of different personalities. Now, does that mean every single person who is multiple you know, personalities has a demon? No, I'm not going to go that far. Because the mind has a capacity to split things up and try to pin away really terrible events and, and everything. But unfortunately, many of them very well could be, and we write them all off to a psychological disorder. And so we want to be very careful. We don't want to be judging people and say, there, there's a demon, there's not, you know. Be very careful. Our job is not to do that. This person had a demon in it, as we found out when Jesus cast the demon out. And this is why seizures does not fit in that, or epilepsy does not fit in this, in the newer translation. And then the man continues, I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't get rid of him. <laughs> they couldn't cure him. Which isn't kind of surprising. The disciples were still learning about the power of God and they had to work on, work on all that. But I, I find Jesus' answer kind of intriguing. He says, Oh, faithful, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Well, I don't think, he, if you look at this later on in what he says, I don't think he's mad. I think he's a little disappointed, especially in the disciples. They're not, they've already been sent out two by two. They've cast out demons. They've done all of this. And yet this time they've, they've run across somebody and and the man basically is saying, well, you know, apparently you guys don't have enough power. Your, 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 your disciples couldn't do it. I think he's talking more to the Father than he is to the, the disciples at this point and the other people around him. You know, you guys just don't understand. You're not understanding what you're dealing with. You're not understanding the spiritual warfare. I could be wrong on that, but this is, what I, this is how I'm reading. You, you all are not understanding what's going on here. More to the crowd. Just as I talked a couple weeks ago to the church, I'm going, we're going through a lot in this church. Why? Because the church, the core group that is studying is going out and learning about witnessing and being challenged to go witness. And Satan doesn't like it, and the whole church is going to be under attack. So wake up. I think he's telling the people, wake up. You're, you're, you're part of this spiritual battle, and you're, you're on the sideline not participating, but you're still in the battlefield. All right? And it says, you're, you're faithless, you don't have enough faith, and you're, you're crooked, you're perverse, you're turning the wrong ways. And he goes, how long shall I be with you? You know, how long am I going to be here? He's a man, and he knows it's going to be shorter than they think it is. And this might even be to the, to the, to the disciples. You know, guys, you're expecting me to, to rule until I'm 80, 90, 100, or, or even longer, but uh, I'm not here very long. Now, they're not even going to understand that because they're going to go, okay, 100 years to God's nothing, you know, uh, Methuselah lived to be 969 years, so yeah, he's, he's just saying he's not going to be here a long time. Who knows what they were thinking? But he says, I'm not going to be here long. How long shall I suffer you? And this does not mean what you think it means. It's how long will I hold you up? In the, in the Greek, it's sustain you, hold you up. Because remember, who are they going to every time they want a miracle? Jesus. And this guy started with the disciples, but they end up going to Jesus. The woman in the crowd reaches out and touches Jesus. If I can just touch the garment of his, the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Uh, all the things that are going on, and he says, I'm not going to be here that long. I can, I'm not going to be the one that's upholding you all that long. We're starting the book of Joshua on Wednesday nights, and it's that same type of thing. All of a sudden, the leader who everybody has raised up on a on a pendulum, you know, Moses is the, the greatest leader that's ever been around their, in their mindset, and all of a sudden he's gone, and, and this young upstart, Joshua, takes over. <laughs> young. He's only, he's only about 70, 80 years old, but, you know, compared to the 120 that Moses was, and he's the only leader they've ever known, all of a sudden this young guy is now leading them. And they're going, uh, well, okay, how are things going to change? We see it in churches sometimes when a pastor's been, a, been in the this, the 
head of the church for a long time and all of a sudden he retires or dies and a new young <laughs> pastor takes over. Sometimes been groomed by the pastor that's leaving, but sometimes not. And all of a sudden the people are going, well, what's going to happen to the church now? Well, if it's God's church, it's going to go forward. If it wasn't God's church, it'll fall apart. But if it's God's church, it'll keep going forward because God was in charge of it in the first place. And he's saying, I'm not going to be long with you, but, but, but even though all that, bring, bring the young man here. Bring, bring your son here. And it says, Jesus rebuked the devil. You know, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. We have a day and age where devils and demons still possess people. And we as Christians can, in the power of Christ, cast out demons. Make sure that if you cast a demon out that you talk to the person about getting saved because Jesus said you, you kick the demon out and he'll go try to find someplace else to be and he'll come back and if the Holy Spirit hasn't filled that person, he'll go find seven other demons and come back and the, and the case will be worse off. So make sure that if you ever in a position where you cast out a demon that you really give the gospel to that person or they're going to be worse than they were to begin with. And that's a very true statement. I've seen it happen. I've seen people get saved. Now most people have the demons cast out of them are ready to come to God. They know firsthand what the power of evil is. And they're usually ready to come to God. But I've seen one or two that weren't. But remember, there's a spiritual battle going on. Very strong spiritual battle going on around us. And the demons are still out there being active. Even in our technological scientific world, demons are still out there. Still doing everything they've done for all the generations of mankind. They still possess people. They still hurt people. They still do all the things they've ever done. But now we're writing almost everything off to disease and sickness. And that's why I'm saying I want to be very careful when I say these things. I'm not saying that all of those sicknesses and diseases are demonic. But we write off a lot of demonic activity to the sickness. And it's a very scary thing. That's why it takes some, a whole lot of spiritual discernment. What exactly are we seeing? How is it effective? And learn to dis discern God's spirit and the, and the evil spirits. It doesn't, it's not that hard. If you just talk to God, he'll show you because that's what he says he's going to do. He doesn't let us walk blindly into battlefields and troubled areas if we ask him. And I've shared with you, I worked at a store where, where I was the manager and I took it over. And out of my crew of 30 plus people, there were 10 people that were straight. The rest of them were gay. And God showed me who all the homosexuals were and blew my assistant manager away because she was lesbian. And one day we were sitting down and you know, we got on a conversation of homosexuality. And, and she goes, you know, she didn't believe that I knew that she, had, that she was a lesbian. And she goes, well, you know, there's others. I go, yeah, and I can tell you every one of them. And I went down the list and she goes, how do you know that? I go, God, told, God had told me. God will let you know what's going on around you if you will listen. Why? Because he doesn't want us to be unprepared for the spiritual battles that we're in. He, he wants us to be prepared. He tells us to put on the whole armor of Christ. Be ready because we are in a battle. The time that warriors get hurt is when they forget that they're in battle. In our day and age, they take off their bulletproof vest because it's so hot. They take off their helmet for just a moment and they catch a bullet between the eyes because they forget that they're still in a war zone. They just forget for a moment, take that helmet off, smoke a cigarette, and the next thing you know, they're dead. Because they forgot. We as Christians cannot forget that we are in a spiritual battle. Otherwise, we will take the darts and the flaming arrows from the, from the enemy and take serious damage in our spiritual, spiritual life if we're not being aware that we're in a spiritual battle. One of the things I think we're going to see when we stand at the Bema seat, we're going to see all this world for what it was in the spirits and see how many times did, our, did an angel take a shot that we were supposed to have? How many times did there was battles going on around us that God protected us from? How many, how many times we got hurt because we were being stupid in the spiritual realm? So we want to be very careful. Then in verse 19, the disciples came to him and said, why couldn't we cast this demon out? 
Okay. And this is a legitimate question from them because, again, remember, they've been sent out two by two already, and they've cast out demons. They've done all these. They've healed people. They've, they've seen miraculous things done. And they come into Jesus and saying, you know, hey, uh, what's up? <laughs> you know, did, did you take the power away from us? Why couldn't, why couldn't we do this? And then we look at Jesus' answer. And it's, it's a two-part answer. And this is why the last part of it is why I believe that he wasn't so angry with them. Uh, he says, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, remove hence to a yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Okay? This is where, this is one of the verses that prosperity gospel, faith healers love. If you don't get healed when I pray for you, it's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. Uh, my answer to them would be, well, what's wrong with your faith, Mr. Mr. Faith Healer? Uh, if my faith's not strong enough, why wasn't yours strong enough? Jesus wasn't saying that everything you're going to pray for is going to be answered in this. But he does say, if you have enough faith, great things can happen. And this is kind of an interesting, he says, if you have the great faith of a grain of mustard seed, a mustard seed, very, very tiny seed that grows into a very large plant in the mustard seed that they're talking about in, in, in uh, the Middle East. It says, if you have just a little tiny, little tiny piece of faith, you could say to this mountain, be moved and thrown into the sea. Now, most people will tell you that that is figuratively, figuratively used, but I don't think Jesus was completely figurative on that. I think he meant it. If you have a reason for that mountain to be moved and you prayed for that mountain to be moved, God would move that mountain. Now, most people will tell you it's figurative. You've got a big mountain, what looks like a mountain to you and, and problems, and God says, you pray and it'll be gone. And I can't remember who it was or where I read it. I tried finding it this week, but I remember reading a biography in one of the many biographies that I read about where this man had a bunch of children. He was teaching about God's word, and they got to this verse, and and the kids literally prayed for a mountain to be moved because it was blocking their vision of the sea. And the next week, the United States Corps of Engineers came in, moved the mountain, and made a wave break <laughs> in the water. And I wish I could find out who it was and where it was. I just remember the story from long ago. And maybe, maybe I'm remembering it wrong. But, but I think God would do just that kind of thing for children to learn the power of prayer and faith. That would be the thing God would do, and I think he would do it for any of us if we really truly believed that he could. How many times do we pray not really believing that God's going to do it? I, I've heard many people, and you listen to their prayers, you know, I'm going to pray that this person be, gets healed. And even though you, they don't say these words, you kind of hear it in this verse. God, maybe if possibly you might think about doing, healing this person, they would, they would really be nice if you did so because they're having a really hard time. Please heal them. <laughs> I've heard prayers where the attitude of the person seems to be just that. God, if it be your will, would you please heal this person? Well, that means if he didn't, didn't heal him, then you just say it wasn't God's will, and if God did heal him, it was his will. It's not a very powerful prayer, is it? Now, I don't want to see us go so far the opposite direction of the faith claim, name it and claim it. God, in the name of Jesus, we command this person to be healed because you promised that everybody's supposed to be healed. That's going way too far the other direction. Because nowhere in the Bible does God say, I'm going to heal everybody. Okay? He doesn't say that. Don't buy into it. He doesn't tell us we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and, and, and uh, rich, and all that other stuff, you know, for perpetual. He says it's possible. He says that he has the power to do so. But that is not a promise he's done for us because most people couldn't handle being wealthy in the first place. They would use it on themselves and not for God. Most people, if they had all their diseases taken away, would never pray to God. It's kind of amazing that sometimes God puts problems on people's lives because there's no other way that they're going to pray. Let's say you haven't prayed in, in two weeks. Let me, let me make life difficult for you so, so difficult you can't handle it and maybe, maybe you'll decide to pray. God, I believe, will do just that kind of stuff. If we want to pray to him every day and study him and, and trust him and, and hold to him, we can get away with a lot less problems in our life. Because then he's just going to send problems and say, okay, you're going to stay faithful or not. 
instead of, well, you haven't prayed for a long time. Let me send you some problems. <laughs> let, me, let me give you something so you will pray. And then the, the level of that, that problem will be just the level it takes to put you on your knees, which for some people means they're in the hospital. God, I, I haven't prayed in a long time, and whoops, I'm in the hospital. How did I get here? God, I need your help. And we want to be very careful, but God says if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can pray that the mountains will be removed, and it will. And I don't care if you want to take it physical, uh, uh, physically or, or figuratively, it's still the same truth. There's lots of messages all over the place about God doing it figur figuratively. God, I've got this big problem. I've got this big problem in my life. I want you to take it away from me. Have you ever noticed, though, in your problems that when you're, on one, when you're looking at the problem, it looks like a huge mountain, and when you, get to, when you get victory over it, you look back and go, what was that little mole anthill that I was thinking was such a big problem? That's been true in my life so often. I, I see these big problems. I pray. I go, God, I, I need help. I get through, and I get to the other side, and I look back and go, was that what I was worried about? <laughs> That, that little tiny molehill over there was what I was you know, looking at in such a problem area. And this is where it usually is. David facing Goliath. He had a lot of faith and was willing to face the giant. giant. Most of the people saw a great big giant that was undefeatable. On the other side, they're going, oh, look at this. David was so great. You know, anybody could have done it. And they're right. Anybody could have done it. Only David had enough faith to do it. So we want to be careful because this can be very figurative as well. Because I've never had the reason to ask for a mountain to be moved into the sea, and I don't think that I would ever need a mountain moved into the sea. Uh, but even having said that, I better be careful. God may put me in a place where I need a mountain moved into the sea, a literal mountain moved into the sea. He could do it. But in most cases, it is a figurative, a figurative mountain, but it can very well be real. If it was something we had to have done, God can do it. Have you ever been facing an insurmountable financial problem? You'll go, God, I, I can't see how this is going to be taken care of. And you go, God, I'm going to put my trust in you. I'm not going to try to get a loan. I'm not going to go get a credit card to pay it off. I'm going to put it in your hands. And the next thing you know, God's paid it off. Been there, done that many times. Watched God do miraculous things in finances. Take a huge mountain and take it away. I've also done it the wrong way occasionally. <laughs> and had to pay, pay a heavier price for doing it the wrong way. But God is saying, I'm ready to do it. Now, the reason I said that I don't think he's really chiding his disciples is this next verse is 21. How be it this kind of demon goes not out but by prayer and fasting. In other words, this is not a demon you just show up and, and, and battle without being prepared. And this is something we've got to be aware of. When we go into spiritual battle, we need to be prepared for spiritual battle. We need to have the armor of Christ on. We need to be prayed. We need to have our sins repented of and be up to date on our confession and, and not have the problems because there are certain spiritual battles that if we're not ready for it, we're going to end up getting beat up. If we're not hiding in God and we're not focused on God, the demon will get the better of us. And the, the temptation will get the better of us. Have you ever had something in your life that you thought there was no way I'd ever sin in this area of my life? You know, I, I am so strong in this area of my life, I would never fall in this area. Now, I did in my lifetime. I, you know, if you'd have told me as a teenager that there would come a time when I, hadn't, and I didn't go to church four or five times a week, I'd have laughed at you. And yet, I got so busy in the workplace, and I finally just kind of stopped going to church for a period of about two years. That was, my strong, that was my strong place. I will never not go to church. And the next thing you know, I'm not going to church for two years. Be very careful. If there's any area in your life that you somehow think, I will not fall in this area, be ready to fall in that area because that's usually the very area that you're going to fall in. The very place that you think is your strength is where you will fall in. Which is why I believe many pastors fall into an adulterous relationship. Because in their mind, they love God so much, they love their wife so much, there is no way that they would ever fall into an adulterous relationship. And the next thing you know, the right girl comes along and the right situation comes along and they look and go, oh my goodness, how did this happen? It's very easy if you set yourself up and say, this cannot happen in my life, beware. 
They throw out a lot of verses that don't fit into what they want to, want to say. What they will say at the bottom of your footnotes in the NIV is that this, this verse is not in the most reliable translations, manuscripts, and what they're trying to say is that they think it doesn't belong there because somebody added it in, in later. I don't buy that because to me this is a very important statement. There are demonic forces that if you're not spiritually ready to battle with, you will lose. Without this verse, this whole verse doesn't make any sense. It's just a whole bunch of criticism. That is not the heart of Jesus. No, they didn't even make the disclaimer. Usually, usually there's a little footnote at the bottom of the NIV that tells you why it's not there. But without this little section, this becomes a very critical, harsh statement from Jesus. And that's not the way Jesus ministers to the lost world that is looking to him, and it's not even the way he ministers to his disciples. He is not that harsh with them. So this, ver this verse softens up his thing and saying, okay, yes, this has been a problem. If you had enough faith, you should have been able to do it. If you had been aware that you were in the battle, you should have been doing it. But this is a strong demon. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So he's basically saying you weren't ready for this particular battle. This was a battle that you would have been a lot stronger. Uh, so it's a pretty big, to me, it's a very important verse. And again, this goes to the example of why some of the newer versions I don't like that much because of the way they take something that really changes the, the paragraph. Taking this verse out changes the, the, the texture of this whole paragraph. I don't, well, I'd have to, I'd have to look. All right, we're going to close in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you go with us as we go about our business and that you will, you will help us to see you and follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.